Tonight, we're going to conclude our teaching series entitled Seven. I want to give us a little bit of context for those who may not have been with us from the very beginning of this series. Uh, In the Bible, there's a character uh, in the New Testament by the name of John. Uh, He was one of the 12 disciples. Uh, He later became a leader in the first century church. Uh, He eventually uh, moved to an area around Ephesus and ministered in and around the city of Ephesus. And he became an overseer uh, of the churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, He was a man of uh, great influence in the church and with the believers of the church during a time of tremendous persecution by the Roman Empire. And because of his influence over those believers, he was eventually arrested and finally exiled to an island about 40 miles off the coast of Turkey called Patmos. And it was while on Patmos that he wrote the last book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation. As Revelation begins, we begin to read it from verse 1, chapter 1, Jesus uh, is going to dictate to John uh, messages addressed to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, while each of these messages or letters was addressed to a particular church in a particular city in a particular time, Uh, What we know is that the truths that are contained uh, within those messages, those letters, uh, have been beneficial to all churches, to all believers, regardless of their location or their historical context. In other words, uh, the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor speaks to each one of us even today. There are things that we can learn about ourselves even today. So let's turn our attention to the final letter, uh, the letter to the church of Laodicea, uh, beginning with uh, Revelation 3, beginning with the 14th verse. It says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The beginning of this letter is just like the beginning of the six letters that preceded it in the fact that Jesus identifies himself. He uses terminology that describes characteristics of who Jesus is. Here it says that he's the amen, which means it's, that he is, it's a word of finality, of certainty, uh, of, of authority. We understand amen in, in the church today that when everything else has been said, the only thing la- left to say is amen. I remember as a kid growing up in church that I would hear someone say amen, and I thought they were saying the end. And I got frustrated because I thought it was the end, but people kept saying stuff and doing stuff. And, I, I, you know, we were one of those churches where people in the audience would uh, hear a certain point in the message, and they'd say amen. And every time I thought, hey, this thing's over, we're going to get out of here. But actually what they were saying was amen. What Jesus is saying about himself is that he reveals and establishes the promises of God, that he is the final word. He is the absolute truth of God. In other words, Jesus is the amen of God. He also says he's the faithful and true witness, which means he's the one who always gives a clear and truthful testimony. It just means that He has always been clear with what he has said. 
He's always been honest with what he has said. And every time he has said something, he has kept his word. Also describes himself as the beginning of God's creation. We have to be careful with this one because what it really means is that he's the creator of creation. It doesn't mean like some false religions would try to teach that somehow he is the first thing that God created and then he began to act. But instead, the word which is in the Greek is the word arche, which is where we get our word architect. It just simply means that, that he is the originator of creation. He is the one who created. John in the gospel of John says in chapter one, verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And in Colossians one, beginning with verse 16, it says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, talking about Jesus, and for him. And he is before all things, or he is above all things, and in him all things hold together. So the one who is the absolute truth of God, the one who, is the, who always gives a truthful testimony and the one who is the creator of creation is about to speak to this church. So what is it that he has to say? Let's look at verse 15 and 16. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Let's stop for a moment. Let's, let's imagine that we had to go to a job performance review. And we walk into the office, whether it's in front of our boss or the CEO, a supervisor, whomever, whomever it may be, who's going to evaluate our performance for that year. And as we walk in, we sit down, we see our file is sitting right there on the desk. And our boss begins to speak. And he says, I've looked over your file I know everything that you have done this year. I know exactly what your performance has been. And then you're sitting there thinking, okay, now I'm about to get an in-depth review. But your review by your boss is just one very short sentence. And what he says is, you make me want to vomit. Now, I know that's crude, that's crass, but that's exactly what the words mean that are translated often that I want to spew you out of my mouth or spit you out of my, out of my mouth. It's the idea of becoming sick to your stomach and, in fact, vomiting. Now, when the Laodiceans heard that imagery, heard those words, they understood completely what the imagery was about. So let's give a little bit of geographical context. You see, Laodicea had a lot of resources, but they also had one problem, and they had a major problem. It was that they had a shortage of water. They didn't have enough water to sustain the growing population that they had within the city. And it was interesting because just north of them, about uh, six miles or so, was the city of Hierapolis. And there, there, there were hot springs that were famous throughout the empire. And people came from all over the Roman Empire to come and to bathe in those mineral springs because of their therapeutic benefit. And just sort of southeast 
uh, of Laodicea, about 10 or 11 miles was the city of Colossae, to which the letter uh, to the Colossians was written. And Colossae had a tremendous amount of fresh, cold water that came from mountain springs. But yet with the hot water to the north of them to, to cold water just to the southeast of them, the city of Laodicea just didn't have the kind of water that they needed, so they had to pipe it in. They brought it from uh, south of the city along an aqueduct that was about six miles long. The problem was when the water got to the city, it had warmed in the sun because of the slow trip along that aqueduct. It had picked up a lot of the sediment and the minerals contained within the rocks. And when it got to the city, it was so pungent, it had become lukewarm that if someone were to drink it right there out of the aqueduct, they know that the reaction is that it would make you sick to your stomach and would cause you to be nauseated. You see, they understood the message. They understood that Jesus was saying to them, you're not cold, which is refreshing and invigorating. You're not hot, which is medicinal and therapeutic. You're neither one of these. I wish you were one or the other, but because you're not in your present condition, you're not good for anything. Because of that, you make me sick. So Jesus states their condition that they're lukewarm. But now in verse 17, he explains how they got there. He says, for you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, the church at Laodicea, their problem really was this that they no longer influenced the culture that they were in. Instead, they had become a reflection of the culture. Now, we know that because of the way that they described themselves. It's interesting that the church described themselves in the same language that someone who was just a, a citizen of the city of Laodicea would describe the city. They use the same language, in fact, that historians use to describe the city of Laodicea. They say that we're rich. Well, the city of Laodicea was a tremendously wealthy city. They were a commercial banking center. Three major commercial trade routes converged right there on Laodicea. So they were a rich city. They said that they had prospered and the city of Laodicea was uh, one with a prospering economy. It was continuing to grow. They had other industries besides the banking industry. They had a garment industry. There were these sheep that were raised around the city of Laodicea that had this unique black wool. And so they would take this very, very shiny black wool and use, use it with other dyed wools, and they would make these robes out of them. Those robes were uh, very expensive, and those robes were very popular in the Roman Empire. In fact, in, in Rome, if you were uh, anyone who was anyone, you had one of these Laodicean robes. They were Armani before there was an Armani. They also had a pharmaceutical industry. They had a medical school that trained doctors, but they also had uh, come up with this powder called Phrygian powder 
that when mixed with water created a paste that was then applied to the eyes and used for, uh, to heal eye ailments. And so they had prospered and they were continuing to prosper as a city. But then historians said that Laodicea was a city that needed nothing and that's how the church described them. So we need nothing. Well, in the historical record, uh, we know that there were a lot of earthquakes uh, in the area where Laodicea is. Pastor Blake last week talked about the earthquakes that hit the city of Philadelphia that was to the north of them and how that Philadelphia appealed to Rome and got assistance from Rome to, to rebuild their city and, and relied upon the assistance from Rome for years after that. But yet the historians, Roman historians, tell us that when Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake, that Rome sent money to help rebuild the city, but the Laodiceans sent the money back. They said, we don't need your help. We will build our city out of our own wealth. So you see, as the church described itself, you can see that they evaluated themselves. They saw themselves through the same moral and ethical lens as the rest of the city, as the culture that God had dropped them into. And the result was that they no longer had an impact upon their city. If they were cold, they would be of service. If they were hot, they would be of service. But they're neither one. There is nothing distinctive about them. And because of that, they've lost all influence. Let me sort of illustrate what they did this way. This is a camouflage jacket. To be honest with you, I had to borrow this from Pastor Chris. Everyone knows Pastor Chris is an, an avid outdoorsman. And whenever anyone is going into, uh, into the woods to hunt, if they're going to hunt deer, going to hunt turkey, they'll put something like this on plus a, a other apparel that will camouflage them. And the purpose of camouflage is so that if whatever it is that they're stalking, whatever they're hunting, were to look in their direction, that they would not see anything that stood out about them. But instead, if they looked at them, they would blend in with their environment. They would look just like the environment that they were in. And that's exactly what had happened to the church at Laodicea. You see, they had blended into their surroundings. They had compromised with their culture to the extent that if you were to look at those who were a part of this church, there would be nothing that would be distinctive about them. If you were to look at how they did business, they did business just like everybody else in the city. If you were to look at their marriages or their families, there was nothing distinctive. They looked just like all the other marriages and all the other families. Everything about them had blended in to the city. And because they had lost their influence, because there was nothing distinct about them, then Jesus says that you're of no good because you're just like the environment I placed you in. You see, what did Jesus expect of them? What did he want of them? Well, I think there are a lot of things Jesus says about the relationship between Christians and culture, but one of the things he says is that we're to be light. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, it says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus expected the church of Laodicea to be a light in the culture, not to blend into the culture. You see, light is power. Light is energy. It is active. It is not passive. Darkness is passive. You see, you don't go into a room and tell somebody, will you turn off the darkness? But instead you walk in and say, hey, will you turn on the light? And the reality of darkness is that it is nothing more than the absence of light. They were placed there to be light. But the problem is that they had lost the ability to illuminate. In the words of Jesus in in chapter 5 of Matthew, in, in in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that what someone does with a light, if they want it to be effective, they actually put it on a lampstand. They raise it up because the effectiveness of light increases with its vertical placement. In other words, the higher you lift it up, the higher you raise it up, the more impact it has. Jesus had planted a church in Laodicea. Jesus had had sparked a light in Laodicea, and he expected them to raise that light high. But instead of raising the light and sitting upon the light stand of their culture so that it could illuminate the culture and make a difference, they had put it under a basket, like Jesus said, but more so what they did is they camouflaged it so that no one could see it And when Jesus thinks about the price he paid to establish that church, the sacrifice he made to establish that light, and he sees that they have pushed it aside and and themselves have basically put it out, it made him sick. But in that verse also we see Jesus is not impressed with their outward success. He says, you say that you're all these things, that you're rich, that you're prosperous, that you don't need anything, but the reality is you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, the Laodiceans were successful materially, but they were deficient spiritually, and that's what Jesus is pointing out, that all of your outward success cannot truly hide the spiritual condition of your heart. You see, it's more important for us as individuals to know what Jesus knows about us than it is to know what people think about us. People may look at the externals and think, man, they've got it together. Look how prosperous they are. But on the inside, we can be just like the Laodiceans. We can be wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Let's look at verse 18. Jesus says, here's some advice I want to give you. Because of your condition, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see, according to Jesus Christ, even though the people of the church of Laodicea were materially prosperous, He says to them, though, but you're spiritually bankrupt. So he advises them to go to the one place where you can go to get the deepest spiritual needs of your life met. 
And that's one place that's back to Jesus. So he says, buy from me these things that you need. You see, it's still true today, no amount of earthly success can satisfy your deepest needs. Those can only be met through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Whenever I see that word discipline, I I think about uh, back in the day when corporal punishment was a thing. Uh, My dad had uh, this uh, tendency that whenever I was in trouble and he was about to administer some corporate punishment, he would use that very familiar line that this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. To which on one occasion, as I got a little bit older and a little more rebellious, I guess, he made that statement, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And I said, well, then please don't hurt yourself. Well, it didn't work out the way I thought it was going to work out. Here Jesus is telling the church at Laodicea, hey, there's still time. I haven't spit you out of my mouth. I will if things don't change, but there is still time to change. And so he tells them that, that I'm disciplining you because I love you, and this discipline, I hope, is going to move you in the direction where you need to go. How is it that we know when God is disciplining us? You know, the reality is that sometimes we just have problems in life because we have problems in life. There, there, there is nothing more to it than that. But there are times that God is using the circumstances and the situations of our lives to bring discipline to us. I think one of the ways that I always know that it is God working is that, that, that when it's discipline, I feel that it's directing me. It's leading me somewhere. It's as if I, I can hear God through the circumstance saying that uh, I know you're here right now, but I want you over there. I know that you're doing this, but I want you to, to, to do that. And I know that this is a part of your life now, but I want this to be a part of your life moving forward. So there's a sense of direction, and it's never cloudy. It's always clear that God is moving me to something. God is moving me in a direction. It may very well be that uh, you've experienced that kind of clarity over the course of the last few weeks as, as life has changed tremendously for people all over the world, but in our community and in our country as well. And it may be that during this time that all of a sudden you realize that God was speaking to you because of circumstances that you're having to face individually. And you can hear the voice of God saying, I want you to move in this direction. I want you to make this change in your life. That's God again out of love helping us to see the movement and the change that needs to take place. But the first step in any kind of change is repentance. That's what he says to the church at Laodicea. I I am going to reprove you. you. I'm going to discipline you. So what do I want you to do? I want you to be zealous and repent. I want you to, to turn. That's what the word repent means. I want you to turn away from those things I want you to turn to me, come back to me, and turn away from those things that have diminished your life, that have rendered you ineffective in the community where I placed you. 
I want you to turn away from your compromise, turn away from the materialism, turn away from the self-reliance. All of those things that have diminished the light. And then he says this to them. Beginning with verse 20. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's just my personal feeling about verse 20. But verse 20 is one of the most unsettling images in all of Scripture. Now, when I was growing up, verse 20 uh, was taught that it, it was an evangelistic verse. It was the, the picture of Jesus standing outside of an individual who was far from God, an individual who had, was not a believer, a sinner, and knocking on their heart's door, asking to come in so that he might come in and bring salvation and bring eternal life. But the reality is that the first readers of that verse were not in that context. You see, this is not a picture of Jesus standing outside of the life of someone who has never accepted Christ. But the image of Jesus knocking at the door is the image of Jesus outside of the church, outside of the life of those who are a part of the church, outside of the life of believers, knocking on the door, trying to get in trying to, to move into their life again. I mean, how did he get outside? How did he get, how did he get outside of the church, outside of a believer's life? And the reality is that just like in Laodicea, he was pushed out. He was pushed out by their indifference. See, the church at Laodicea was... Uh, was not condemned because they had denied the gospel. They were not being challenged by Jesus because they had denied the cross and the work that he did on the cross. They had not denied Jesus Christ. They believed those things. But the reality is that they had just become indifferent towards them. They didn't, those things didn't speak into their lives anymore the gospel, the cross, Jesus, but instead the environment, the culture, society spoke more into their lives. Because of that, Jesus has been pushed away. But he goes on to say in that verse that, that I stand here knocking, and if you will invite me, he says, I will come in with you. And what I'll do is I'll dine with you and you with me. I mean, what a contrast, right? Jesus on the outside of the church, outside of a believing heart, knocking, trying to get in. And now you see the image of Jesus sitting and dining with those same believers. One individual said that, that this description of sitting and dining is the image of perfect fellowship. I do know this, that the word that is used in the Hebrew or in the, in the Greek there is a word that describes not just any meal, but a specific meal. It describes the last meal of the day. 
the meal that is more of a feast and more of a banquet than the other meals. It's not something that is done quickly. It's not, dry, it's not a drive-in kind of meal. But it's the kind of meal where people gather and they gather with their family and with their closest friends. And it's a meal that, again, is not eaten quickly, but it can take hours to eat. But the most important thing about the meal is not that the food is there and there's more food than enough and, and it's delicious food, but it's the conversation. It's the intimacy of the relationships. And Jesus is saying, that's where I long to be. I don't want to be on the outside of your heart, having been pushed out by your indifference. But instead, I want to be inside. I want to sit with you. I want to eat with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to speak into your life. I, I, I want to inform the decisions that you have to make. I want to inform the way that you live your life. I want to inform the way that you are to be a light in the city and the culture where I've dropped you. So let me ask you a question. What best describes your current relationship with Jesus Christ? Is it sitting together for a meal? Or is it Jesus on the outside looking in? If it's Jesus on the outside looking in, just simply do what Jesus says. That is to repent. Repent of the things you've done or not done that have pushed him into a secondary position and turn back to him, turn back to his word. Make that the most important part of your life. As we have closed this series, as we close the series, you know, I look back over the, the seven letters and the seven teachings and and I begin to think, what are the lessons that I've learned from these seven churches? So let me give you three things that I think that even today, 2,000 years removed from those churches and their context, the things that still speak to us today from those letters. Number one, the Jesus John described in the first century is the same Jesus today. He has not changed. He's described in these letters as the one who walks among the churches. He's described as the first and the last, the one who was dead and who's come to life. He's described as the one with a sharp double-edged sword, one whose eyes are like fiery flame and feet are like fine bronze. He's described as the holy and the true one, the amen, the faithful witness, and as the creator of creation. He's still that Jesus today. Another thing that I've learned is that the trials and pressures faced by the first century church are the same trials and pressures that we face today. They're just packaged differently. And so as I look at those churches and I see their struggles, I see what they went through, the trials that they faced, I realize that I deal with some of those very same things today. They may look a little different but it's the same pressure, it's the same temptation. And lastly, I've learned through these seven letters that Jesus couldn't have made it any clearer that following him requires our very all. It requires everything. 
You find out from his communication with these churches that being a follower of Jesus Christ is serious stuff. This is not a casual matter. And it requires an unrelenting commitment to Jesus Christ. I've learned that we must always, in every area of our lives and in every decision that we make every day of our lives, we must choose to follow Jesus Christ and to follow the way of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and thankful for the fact that uh, it is a living word, that though we have been reading words that uh, were penned to churches uh, some 2,000 years ago, we realize that uh, those words and the messages to those churches and the, and the discipline, everything about them speaks into our lives today. That it's easy to find ourselves in those letters. And God, I, I just pray that we would take the lessons from those churches, we'd apply them to our lives, and especially as we conclude our look at this last church, God, that, that we would not do anything that would push Jesus Christ to the fringes of our lives. But God, that we would turn to him and invite him to be the center of our lives. And that we would ask him to help us not to hide who we are, not to hide who he is, but God, that you would help us, that we would let our light shine, and in doing so, that we would be a transforming agent in our neighborhoods, our communities, and in this world. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.